When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Got another great guest here today. He's a familiar guest now from last week, a, a multi-time uh, guest, Eric Eager from PFF. The Let me just make sure I have this right. The VP of Research and Development at, at PFF. That's right. Yep. Uh, obviously, a, a uh, educated man here. A doctor. What's You have a doctorate in what? Uh, applied Mathematics. Okay, that is the right kind of math for for an actuary to to be. Mm-hmm. Did you ever consider an actuarial career at some point? I, I passed one of the tests, uh, right, kind of on the uh, the summer between when I went to uh, college and grad school, just in case I wanted to become an actuary. Um, I had some friends, obviously, that I went to undergrad with that that became actuaries, and uh, and they 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 they, they like their career, so uh, it was just you know sort of one of the paths. Uh, and, and a fairly popular one back then when like football analytics and stuff weren't, weren't as popular. Yeah, boy, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if it had been around at the time, I'd, it had been my dream job. And uh, at, back at that time, it was sabermetrics that I want to work in, which kind of is a segue into our topic for tonight. We're going to talk about the derivation of PFF war, a very noble goal to try and uh, distribute the credit for plays in a way that you can you can ascribe war wins above replacement to various NFL players. And I want to take a step back from this because I'm fairly familiar with baseball war and how that was developed originally. And it's been, it's gone through a number of evolutions over the last 20 years. I'm sure you looked at this extensively, Eric, when you're developing the, the football PFF war, would I be right about that? 
Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's, you know, when we look at one of the ways in which we go from like wins above average, wins above war, or sorry, wins above replacement, like we did look at sort of like the methodology for sort of like what, you know, folks at Fangraphs, Baseball, baseball Reference, folks like that uh, did. And, and yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of inspiration taken from it, even though, you know, the, the nature of a game like baseball and the nature of a game like football are, are I think, drastically different in that regard. Yeah, they, they certainly are. I mean, one of the things is that uh, certainly is a, is a point I want to get to is that I mean, baseball, everybody's always trying to optimize runs on offense and trying to obviously optimize the reduction of runs on defense. Whereas in football, the game is really played for for not for points, although there are good expected points models out there. It's really played for wins. And you notice that more in extreme situations like kneel down situations at the end of the game, which are the ultimate in not optimizing points, but still optimizing wins. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and and the hard part is 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 football is very small sample size with respect to games. Yeah. Um whereas baseball is really small sample size with respect to plate appearances, you know, football gets some of that sample size back in the in looking at plays or the number of plays run in a game. Uh and you know, other than a few plays, there are you know, very t- tight correlations between trying to maximize scoring and trying to maximize winning. Um, but there are the edge cases. The issue with ed- edge cases, and well, I think we'll talk about this in a little bit, is in some of the sort of like starts and stops we've had with PFF war is like you have to be careful about sort of, uh, you know, for example, a Hail Mary that is completed at the end of a game is going to be worth almost nine-tenths of a win. That doesn't necessarily measure the contribution in a game, you know, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't measure how good a player is. Generally speaking, it will measure sort of some of the contribution. So the, you do have to talk about shrinkages and things like that to account for the, the, the fact that that, that happens. And that magnifies the context is what you're saying basically is that you shouldn't give the player who makes the big catch Tyler Boyd, you know, a couple of years ago against the Ravens, you know, a, a extra credit for the context in which he made his catch. I, I think so. And I think that that, that, that is really the tricky thing is sort of like what does, you know, the, the, the goal of the whole ordeal is to say like what, what is a plus 0.5 grade equal to uh, vis-a-vis winning football games for a player? And, you know, what does that mean when you do it as a run blocker versus when you do it as a pass receiver? And uh, when does that happen, you know, could, can certainly make a difference uh, with respect to uh, winning football games. Okay, so let's go back to baseball for just a second. Explain that methodology. Get that in in the past, and then we'll get right to PFF war on football because I'm dying to talk about that. Um, so they wanted to recognize value. Uh, Bill James made the comment in the '80s, probably that that pennants are lost every year by the inability to find an average player at a position. So it's it's you don't just can't just judge people at at, a, at an average level. An average player has value, and you know the replacement level is an interesting thing in baseball. I do want to talk about the replacement level in football as one of the topics we get to later. But that was one of the difficult things about baseball in defining war was the arbitrary nature of trying to define the replacement level. And they've moved it around several times and eventually settled on 290, settled, they're at 294 currently as a winning percentage uh, for baseball. That's 48 and 114. Your team would be expected to go if you had a bunch of zero war players on the team. 
That's interesting as a factoid, but it, it doesn't help me build a championship baseball team if I have a bunch of one war players to choose from unless I understand the context of their place. That's one of the difficulties in transparency. Otherwise, war for baseball is very well defined, at least mathematically. Step by step, you can go through and you, you, you generate runs above average. You compare that to you know league average runs, uh, and then you take the league average runs minus the replacement level runs, which I think is the exact same formula you're using on the football side correct yes uh and and that's the and that's the thing and like and that's really where you know in the first you know first times we've ever used war you know in a team setting like you know or you know even in the first applications of it the the biggest concern was almost always you know sort of what does this mean uh with respect to like what does this mean with respect to uh like why did you choose this as the, as the boundary? Um, because that boundary is different. Um, you know, like in baseball, there's, there's probably positional differences, but there's really no difference necessarily, um, between like a, uh, a corner, like an outfielder coming in from triple a and a second baseman coming in from triple a, whereas a replacement level quarterback is very much different. And the marketplace is different relative to a replacement level guard because of the sample sizes and the just the scarcity of the positions it's extremely difficult to sort of uh, pin those down I, I think one of the other things that's interesting about football is i think the replacement level is a moving target that changes as the year goes on that first quarterback that has to be found either during the the preseason with an injury or maybe even in september that guy might be okay Whoever is the first guy out, uh, you know that you're, you're you're picking up off the street. The guy you pick up in December, he's not going to help your team very much, I don't think. And that goes for a lot of positions. Cornerback, in particular, a, 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 a play a position where the Ravens have had a lot of injuries over the years. The street corners that they picked up in December have been pretty bad. Yeah, and that, and that's again where you sort of need to have the the scheme level elements and the and, and there's there's a number of different things as far as correlations that I'm not quite sure like we can capture, um, you know, as effectively, but like, you know, strong link systems versus weak link systems, those aren't necessarily true. I think they are to a certain degree in baseball, let's say with outfield defense, for example, or infield defense, but in like the batting order, there's really not like a, there's really not like a downstream effect of having sort of like a terrible team on this player's contribution because this player's contribution on average would have generate this many runs. Whereas the correlations in like offensive line play often make it actually difficult. Like it make it actually difficult to play left tackle. If your left guard is replacement level. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that completely. Definitely makes it, makes it far more difficult. So to tell us about kind of the origin and, and how you went through this process at PFF to, to define a war statistic. And I think maybe we should just start by saying, I, I really value the fact that you guys are putting something on the table because all of model building is basically taking successive shots where you continuously improve your model but you have to have somebody have the bravery to put a model out there first. Well, and, and I got to say, like when we, I mean, so we first published it on the, we've, we've sort of toyed with it at times before. And I got to say, there's, there's YouTube videos and there's articles out there where I'm quoting numbers that I no longer support. And, you know, there, there's a Sloan analytics paper that I thought was a very good uh, step in the right direction that uh, I'm currently like through a, 
through, you know, trial and error and discussions with teams and feedback, like we're going to probably come out with a different set of numbers relatively soon. Um, and you're right. I mean, it's absolutely a humbling experience because you end up, you know, like the first iteration we had, I think, you know, we really valued coverage players. You look across the league and you look at, you look backwards looking, you say, who is winning football games? It's teams that value coverage like Baltimore, like uh, in New England, even, you know, the years that Kansas City like got over the hump. It was the Tyron Matthews of the world. And, you know, pass rushing was sort of this thing where I think a lot of people overrated it. And then you can sort of extend that too long, too much and say, okay, maybe I'll buy cornerback play instead of buying edge play. And then you look and what you're saying, well, but actually cornerbacks, they're so streaky that one year they're worth it, you know, seven, seven tenths of a war. And then the next year they're negative. Whereas defensive linemen offer the same every single year is their value inherent in that. And so like you sort of like you iterate on these ideas and, and it, and it does, it's a humbling experience because you're every single time, you know, that you're wrong. So I, I got to ask you about that in particular. Cornerback play is one thing where I think the PFF grades haven't been very stable year to year, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're grading improperly on the play. That just means there's some some uh, some context issues there, perhaps in a smaller sample size in terms of targets that would happen in a year where the player tends to get burned more. Way back in the old day, when I first talking to Neil Hornsby, he mentioned that there was a small uh, improvement in score for every snap a cornerback was on the field where he did not get targeted. Is that still part of the PFF methodology? It is. Um, it's taken. It's a. It's a little bit uh, of a. It's that that normalization constant is dependent upon uh, factors that that are more or less like dependent upon the play. So if the ball gets out in two and a half seconds, we will give the cornerback a smaller positive constant than if the ball got out in three and a half seconds, but you're still there. There's an aspect of the results. You know, how much of your grades are results based and how much of them are process based. I know uh, on my podcast, the PFF forecast, George Shahuri, my co-host and I talked about that where I'm fairly confident that what we're measuring in the pass rushing space is almost completely uh, process-based. Um, I, I think that, that we can really suss out who's winning versus who's getting statistics based upon context. I'm far less, I'm far less confident that that's happening at the cornerback position because until a couple of years ago, we weren't, we weren't charting every single player off the ball and that, again, is sort of like giving rise to sort of this Bayesian thing where like, what's the probability that you throw that pass given that that coverage has occurred and then multiplying that by what's the, the set of probabilities of outcomes that can happen given that ball is thrown. Like we're, I think now having access to tracking data and now having access to some even like a system in place to chart off the ball players, I think we're going to get better there. But I still think that there's a decent amount I, I, for one thing, coverage is more unstable just in general because it is a receiving uh, process where you are at the whim of the attacking team, whereas pass rush, right. you are the attacker. But I also think the way that we measure it is also incomplete relative to pass rush. And, and that gives rise to a lot of those issues. 
That's a, that's a great point because cornerback, you, you, you are kind of, your bat total is limited. So you're only like, if, if you were thinking about this in baseball terms, you're only getting 40, 40, 45 innings a year of pitching. Whereas if you're an offensive lineman, you're graded every single play of a 1,000, 1,100 snap season. And, you know, you essentially have a, a ton of at-bats, even if you, whether you're good or bad, doesn't really matter. You're going to have, you're going to have those at-bats graded. But, but at cornerback, it does seem like uh, you would have more vision variation in outcome by the by that lower total and that's why i was kind of wondering how that worked i didn't want to take us too far down the tangent on this i kind of wanted to let you kind of talk through the process of how war was built now so we you've 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 talked about you looked at good teams to see what they were doing and then where did you go from there yeah so then a lot of it is just sort of aggregating at different levels so um, you know, we'll have, you know, the, the key is the Y variable. So oftentimes we'll use, and the Y variable will, we'll use either wins as they are measured by expected points. So we'll literally add the expected points in each facet of play and then do a division of credit to say, okay, these players had these grades that added up to this you know, this difference in expected points or expected wins or, you know, whatever the outcome variable is. And generally speaking, you'll use an ensemble of those insights to generate what the, the eventual thing is. And then you divide the credit based upon those players. Okay. So I think this would be a really good place to go through like a specific example. So let's, let's say the Ravens win a game by 14 and then you, you look at your scores and you say, or you use whatever method you have to divide that up. And you say the Ravens produced 10 of those points on defense, three on offense and one on special teams in terms of differences from expectation. And, and then you'd have, you'd have the facet grade. So let's say, and again, this is sort of like you can aggregate at different levels to get what these weights are. And then you can do different things to the weights. So, um, but you can say, okay, if if this team is two wins above average or replace or whatever the benchmark is in on the defensive side of the ball, and they grade it out this way, then I'm going to attribute. I'm gonna so let's say two wins above average, and they have like a plus ten pass rushing grade uh, in the plus minus system, a minus you know a minus 0.5 grade in run defense and a plus 25 grade in coverage. Okay. How, how am I going to apportion all of those together? And, and essentially, okay, then this player contributed to that plus 10 plus two and a half. So then he gets a certain fraction of that. And, and, you know, you sort of go through and then there are little itty bitty things that you have to worry about with respect to, let's say the correlation between the correlations that actually exist, like passing and receiving, um, but, but for the most part, that's what it is. You're sort of like aggregating up and saying, okay, how much of these points created have, were or points prevented, depending upon the side of the ball, were, can be attributed historically to these facets of play, which again is not stationary because in 06, it was different than 2020. Yeah. And then you say, okay, if this player has this grade profile, okay, how many wins did they add to the equation? And then you do, you do a little bit of opponent adjusting because – uh, schedules are not uniform year to year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the other thing that I didn't really hear there was how you determine relative positional value of equivalent grades. So like a point yep. at quarterback versus a point at passer. Should tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, and it's even broader than that. So like, this is one of the adjustments we made uh, just to be like transparent, like, 
our safety wars were pretty high. And when a player, and I think one of the reasons was that you had players like Harrison Smith or players like thinking like, um, like Chuck Clark even falls in this category where a guy does like a number of different things pretty well. Like Chuck Clark rushes the passer, he covers okay, and he, you know, stops the run really well. And that player is like that player does those things, right? Run defense, coverage, and pass rush. But like pa- pass rushing from a safety spot is not like almost anybody can do it if given enough credit. So if that guy gets a certain grade per snap in that position, they don't get enough, as much credit as if a guy did it at defensive end. So those grades in those facets are often split by position. And one of them is, is one of them is even coverage. We split among corners, slot corners and safeties because the cornerback position coverage ability is more scarce at, than it is at safety and safety. It's sort of, it's a less of a big thing, even within safeties. And this is something we're struggling with is like, it's actually hard to differentiate between the Earl Thomas's of the world and the Harrison Smith's of the world. Earl playing kind of like a cover three most of the time in Seattle, kind of a one assignment guy, but a brilliant at it versus Harrison Smith, who plays multiple positions extremely well. How do you sort of differentiate between those? But yeah, you, you are differentiating. So I, I like to say that in many cases, the positional value takes care of itself because you let the math sort of wean out the um, the weights um, based upon the duties that they have. So an interior defender is going to run defend a certain amount, pass rush a certain amount, and then the values within those differentiate from edge, you know, a- a- as well as the apportionment of the snaps they take there. But it's also, it also is like we do make, cons- we do like have factor variables that like, this guy's an interior defender when he does this, this guy's an edge when he does it. Okay. So the thing you end up apportioning is the PFF grade effectively, right? Now you might scale it and do some other things to it. Like you mentioning a a safety getting less credit for his pass rush ability, but you're effectively apportioning that PFF grade. What steps do you take to take your PFF grade back and tie it to wins effectively? Well, you have a model that says you add those things up and then you say, you add those things up with the proper weightings and say, and, and this is where the tricky thing is, like, what adjusted win score does a team with this profile end up with on average? And then okay. you essentially add in this player X, which is a replacement player, and you take the difference between those two win scores. Okay, I might be struggling with that a little bit. Um, uh, is your your win your win score? If you want to talk about that, is that a a point differential like we see on uh, on Football Reference, for example, or is it something else that I'm missing? We yeah, it's an ensemble like it's an ensemble of like either in some cases you can use like adjusted wins, which are basically just win. Like you can say this team, you know. The Y variable can be it can be you know we've we've worked with different types. So the Y variable could literally be expected points added up, and then using Pythagor Pythagorean I you know the, the Pythagorean win sure. win share. It, it you know it the only thing I think it can't be is actual wins. Like if you are go fourteen and two, you're not really a team that won you know 
uh, 11 or whatever that is. Yeah. 11 games above replacement. You're more like it, unless you actually did win that many games fundamentally, you, like you either have to use expected points there um, or something that we opt for, which is, you know, there, there's a way to sort of like take the PFF grades and say like, this is what the score of the game would have been had we had the PFF grades mapped completely to the, the score of the game. And so yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested in seeing that on a weekly basis. Yeah. Do you have something where, where you show that at elite level or anything? Uh, we don't. It, it is. It, it's what powers our, our PFF ELO model, which is basically like, again, instead of using like a traditional ELO, what we do is feed a uh, learning model, the grades and say, okay, this, the score of the game was 21 17 versus what the game was actually equal to. And that's how we, that's kind of that's kind of how we do the Pythagorean win identity for our using our grades. Like that, what we hope is just a little bit different than the Pythagorean win total that uses points for and points against. Okay. Um, but the, but then but we take a player who has sort of a replacement level profile in all those grades for that position, and we we see what a team would win with that player, and then with the player of interest, and then we take the difference there. Okay. Now, I, I, of course, spent years enjoying the PFF grades when they were plus minus, and I think they were really a lot easier to understand in, in those days for, for a lot of fans. And certainly the fans that got used to it, they, their cheese was moved. So we're, you know, whiny old men now, and we, we complain yeah. about the way this is now. But, the, but in terms of a current PFF grade, is 60 like a break even? So if you have like almost no at-bats, uh, you know, almost no opportunities in the game, you, you'd pretty much get a 60 or a zero on one or two plays? Yes. Uh, a, yeah. So it's weird because I mean, th this is, this is, this predates me and this is something where, um, yeah, I've dug into it, but like, it, and there's been some drift and you know, the, our present, like our presentation to the consumer is a little bit different than what we use internally for research and stuff, which is what you would probably prefer, which is the plus minus grades on the play level. Mm -hmm. Um, but like the PFF grades that you see on on you know like premium in 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 a perfect world a player with a thousand snaps who get earns a 60 grade would be a replacement player which is with a zero war and that player who that that player who basically is amazing on one play and that's the only play he played the whole season would also be like roughly a 60 because you know th that we're not going to say he's a 99 or whatever because he hasn't played enough snaps so that it is like a replacement level player in both senses, which is one is omission and then commission, which is that he played a thousand snaps and he stunk. And that, that those are, and then 70 being sort of the average, I think maybe, maybe it's depends upon the position, but it's somewhere between 68 and 72 is average. And then, you know, once you get in those eighties or nineties, you're sort of an elite player. Okay. So what I, what I do recall is that there's a number of players that are in the fifties in, in particular, it seems to be offensive linemen get there might be the large number of at bats coming in with a slightly below average score. If we were looking at the plus minus grades on those players, would it be any player who'd be negative that over the course of a season, they tend to be 58 or 57 if they were a minus five in total points scored for the year, say for, for example, in the old system. Yeah, they would. Um, I mean, a, a minus, uh, yeah, so a minus grade is still, generally speaking, a little bit above average unless it's really bad. Unless it's like TJ Clemmings, you know, you, you basically have to be, 
I mean, in the old system, you had to be like a minus 25 to be a negative war player. Okay. Because the average was so, and again, it was sort of like some years, like there was zero, you know, zero was average generally, but like the spread was, and, and this gets down again to the number of at bats. Like if you grade an offensive lineman for a thousand plays, a minus 25 seems like a lot, but it's really not. Um, you know, it's a couple play, you know, it's, it's a couple plays worse than average per game per game. And, and, you know, but the hard part is, is like at, at offensive line, like that could kill you, right? If, if one of those minus ones is a false start penalty, a false start penalty is worth, uh, minus one expected points. And you think about like all the stuff an offensive lineman has to do to earn one positive expected point. It's hard because every good thing that an offense does, the left tackle is sharing in credit. Whereas the one false start that player makes, they, they dump all the credit themselves. And so it's, it's asymmetrical there. Now that doesn't mean you have to get all the way to zero expected points to be above, you know, zero war because you know, you're, you're being, you know, uh, compared to your peers, but it is tricky, right? Like it's, it's, it's hard to think about. Whereas if one defensive back gets an interception, that's like worth three, four war. And, you know, you obviously you, you have to give some of the credit to the pass rushers and the other players in coverage, but it's still a lot. And you have to like kind of really screw up a coverage play to, to give that back to the offense. Okay. You said 0.3 or 0.4 war. Is that what you meant by that? Or three or four war legitimately? I'm sorry. Like if a coverage player, if a coverage player gets an interception, it's worth like three or four expected points. Like an interception, depending upon the down and like, if you get a pick six uh, in the red zone, it's like 12 points, you know? So then, sure. And you know, if you give up like a touchdown and cut, like let's say you give up a touchdown in the red zone, it seems at like the five yard line, the expected points on that play was already like four and a half, five. Sure. You give up the touchdown. It's not even getting you to zero. You're still a plus player. And so, and then you get the itty bitty little credits every time you're not targeted or you're not, or you don't give up a completion. And like, you know, it's sort of those swings. Whereas with offensive linemen, it's like it little itty bitty swings. And the only positive ones are, or the, sorry, the only high magnitude ones are ones where you're screwing up. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have, to, you have to make a lot of successful either move to level two, make a block or, or hold your guy off on a run play, yeah. get him sealed properly. Yeah, I've, I really wanted to get into that with you, but I think that's such an extensive topic in terms of the offensive line play and how you scored. But the one question I have is, do you think PFF is fully reflecting the back end of double team blocks properly? Because it seems like that's probably a zero score in your system. And it's something I think has more value than I think is being awarded and, and i'm not saying it has a ton of value it just has some value and a lot of teams that run a lot of double teams like the ravens do in combination all the time uh, you know they have guys who are very well versed at holding the back end effectively and and are contributing to that first contact coming three four yards downfield yeah so and and this is an example this is sort of the anomaly where i you know i played tight end in college i've like executed that block and yet i don't and, and yet i don't know if we are evaluating it properly, because I, I don't grade, like I'm a mathematician, like I don't grade. I do know that those are generally speaking zeros, but in like the backside of like a zone run play, like if you seal sort of the guy cuts back into like two gaps yeah, down running, and you yeah. seal that, I do think you get a plus. But then the question becomes, again, this is what makes football so hard. And again, why I try to approach this with so much humility, because it's like, 
if the if the running back cut two holes down, but you had that same seal block, that's the exact same process, but it's not yeah. likely necessarily to have gotten the positive grade. And that's, again, I, I do think that process level, we are grading O-linemen, especially in the passing game, really well. But in the run game, there there is some aspect of a lot of this stuff that is results-based. If the, if, the, if the running back doesn't, if the running back makes one cut, your block is all of a sudden extremely important. And if he doesn't, like you are doing the exact same thing, but it's not necessarily going to garner even like the attention. Like you're not, it, it's sort of like inconsequential, right? And so the question becomes, that's, that's not the offensive lineman's fault. That's the running back. And, and so, you know, how, and I think, I think this is where something like the tracking data or something like that can really sort of like, set expectations better and say like, you know, the probability that this play gets in the B gap instead of the C gap is, is this. And if you execute this over and over and over again, you should not get the Boolean variable that you end up getting. You should get some probability of if it goes to C gap and you make this block, you are worth this. And if it goes to the B gap and, and, and you make that block, it is worth this. And I, and I think that is, that's still a little bit of a ways away from being the reality. Okay. All right. So how are you guys looking at tracking data and using that to um, analyze or review how your scoring has worked? Have you, have you done stuff with that yet? Or you, you, I know tracking data has been used now for rush yards over expectation, which is a big new breakthrough by the Austrians. What? year and a half ago or whatever at this point um, how are you guys using it to to impact pff grading well it so the answer is is a is we focused on other things first so one of one of them would be coverage you know and i know that that was the subject of the big data bowl last year so i feel like somewhat some freedom to be able to talk about that but that's like the like being able how you occupy space it, it, you know, is I think the biggest factor in coverage, probably more so than how well you play the football, because mm -hmm. you know that what that's just certainly more repeatable year to year, and and that that is not something that anybody's been able to attack before, and and being able to use that to sharpen like a play where let's say you get absolutely beaten uh, by a play and the ball is underthrown, and you make a, a brilliant play on the ball, like our grades would probably be relatively forgiving for you. But if you run that play over a thousand times, Nick Foles might make that throw, you know, whereas yeah. he missed it in previous. So, and given how important the passing game is, that's kind of where we focus, but there, there are a number of different applications that you can use. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're starting at, you know, in different spots just because again, like it's such a vast, it's just a vast array of problems. Um, and, and I think, Regrading might be the last one that we approach, um, mm -hmm. but using the grades as labels is certainly something that um, you know I, I think you know gives you an advantage. Once you know, if you have the if the problem is somewhat supervised, you you have an adva advantage using some of the you know machine learning techniques versus sort of unsupervised. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to something you said a little bit earlier because I thought it was is very interesting. I think there's a Ravens slant to it. You mentioned that pick six in the red zone, you might pick up ten points or something close to it by turning a, a, a 
play where the, the team had an expectation of four four and a half positive points into something where you gained your team six and a half or seven points uh, by running it back the other way. Marcus Peters on the Ravens is really known as a great gambler, and he had such a pick against the Bengals in 2020. Or 19. I forget which year it was. But anyway, he ran, it, it was a pick six on a on a three-yard out. In fact, the, the, I think it was Gannon was calling the game. He called the play as it's happening. Peters obviously did too as well and noticed exactly what was happening. How can you – does the grading system reflect efficient gambling by cornerbacks who will allow themselves to get burned some – and then also make big plays on the other side, or does it is the, is it inherently penalizing them because they can't get a grade higher than plus two, say, uh, somehow? Yeah, I, that that is no the the fact that our grades are bounded um, can be an issue, and you know there have been ways that pr- people prior to me have tried to make you know like the normalization of grade go for two to like six. I think mm-hmm. that's caused some instabilities in the grades because. You know, you know, Peters is a great example because Peters is a, is a player who, you know, I, I'm a Chiefs fan. He fell out of favor in Kansas City, but he was amazing for them. He generated a ton of value for them. And then he goes to L.A. and he can't cover anybody. He goes to Baltimore. He's been brilliant. And it's sort of like, okay, so what is War trying to do here? Is War trying to say how much value he added to the team in this time frame? Or is it trying to say, like, he is a X-win player? I don't, I, I actually struggle sometimes with what that means. Like I, cause if I'm saying that Marcus Peters is a half a win player, I think, I think there's a distribution associated with that, that doing it from a sort of like, like I think, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think he presents a, a tricky thing because of what you're saying, which is the, the vast swings that we talked about at the beginning, which was, you know, this is a 90 a 0.9 win probability swing in this Hail Mary from, you know, Aaron Rodgers to Richard Rodgers. But like neither one of those guys is a 0.4 win player in that game. Peters is kind of like that too. I, I kind of actually do like it being a minus two to two system in the sense that if you repeat that play over and over and over again, sometimes Peters gets tripped up at the 20 instead of runs it back for a touchdown. Sometimes he gives up a touchdown, which is actually not that bad if you're starting from the 10 yard line. Sure. Et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I don't know. Like, it, it's a great question because, you know, football is about the swingy plays and, you know, you, and that's part of the romantic part of it. So a, outstanding. I want to just say again that you guys are starting this modeling process and I think you're approaching it from the right standpoint in terms of uh, we're willing to rebuild this C- as is needed. And and also probably in terms of your client clients are going to tell you how to rebuild mm-hmm. that too. Have you had discussions with teams that where they say, you know what, we think this is a little more valuable. Can you put some value in that? Uh, I, yeah, that, that That's the number one. I mean, when we pr- built war the first time, I mean, it was probably 18 months of trying to get teams to give us feedback before we ever uh, presented in the public sphere. Almost all of the questions that we get um, are, you know, a lot of the, the the truly honest feedback is, you know, hey, safeties are way too much. This is why. Can you investigate this? And it's like, oh, yeah, the, the, you know, or sometimes it's no, actually, like, this is actually, you know, you know, if, if you... So there's, there's robustness things you can do to models, right? You can like perturb them and see, you know, how things, 
And it's like, no, actually, like under a bunch of perturbations, this is how much corners are worth. And it's kind of like, and so, so there are there are things where you're wrong, and there are things you're right. And obviously, when you are wrong, you sort of a you. That's why you version two and version three things. Okay, very cool. Eric, always a pleasure having you on. It's just a great discussion. I know there's a little bit of mathematical nerdistry that's probably beyond some people here, but I know my listeners are going to really love this, and particularly out of the people who are longtime listeners of this show. Tell people, first of all, where they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, I'm, I'm PFF underscore Eric um, on Twitter. And any any other thing you're working on, writing project that you want to pitch? Uh, yeah, so we I have the PFF forecast, which is my podcast. Um, it's on iTunes, YouTube, all that good stuff. Um, I'm currently working on um, an, an article talking about sort of what happens to the um, the simulations of the season if Aaron Rodgers gets traded to Denver. I don't think it's going to happen, but I do just kind of want to see what happens as an exercise. Um, working on some 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 things where, you know, if you have a PFF elite subscription, which by the way, you can, you can uh, buy into this week. I still think we have a, a, uh, a deal this week. Um, save 40. Save 40. Um, if you want one of those, you know, I kind of want to tell uh, some people sort of like ways in which you use it. Last week I talked about if you want to bet interception props, um, here's how to use our turnover worthy plays metric and how it correlates more actually with interceptions that interceptions do, I'm going to do a similar thing with pressures if you want to bet sack props. And so just stuff like that where it's always fun. Like you, you work on these things for so long and you get so into the groove that sometimes you forget that every single year you have thousands of new listeners and subscribers. So you kind of want to refresh a lot of those ideas. All right. Very cool. I could tell there's a background in gambling here. Uh, and that's true of almost every applied mathematician yeah. I've ever met that there's all that, but we'll talk about that another time. Eric, thanks so much for coming on again. Awesome, Ken. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.